In this episode, we're going to address some viewer questions that's come in in the last few weeks, and I'm thinking maybe we should just schedule this maybe once a month or once every two months, schedule and plan when we'll do the show, maybe do a live version of it, get people to send in questions, because I know people have liked to do that over the years. We got several questions. Some have been asked repeatedly by different people in different forms, so we'll kind of condense those and make it simple. Remember to give us a like and a share or a heart or a little star on what other podcast platform you're on. If you're on Apple Podcasts, please give us a review. Make sure, too, on your platform, just like Apple, if it's got a space where you can write in a comment about a specific show, specific episode, the whole thing, please do so so we can see that and find out what you like that we can do more of, or you can ask us questions in there. Also, check the show notes, find my contact information for email, Twitter, and Facebook. You can send me your questions and comments there. So viewer questions, a little smash up of the things that have been going on, not only recently in the world, just general curiosity and some of the past shows we've had recently. That's what we're going to do right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight. I think the biggest thing I've been asked about recently is the election. That's the hot topic. Everybody wants to talk about the election. Everybody's an expert. And I've had several different versions of this. Some are pretty conspiracy-based or crazy-based or I guess you could say worst-case scenario. I think looking at it, it's very simple. Most people knew there was going to be a problem and half the people weren't going to like the results no matter what happened. I think it's a good thing that it was so close because had it been a sweeping victory for the president, we would have seen as many people were preparing for lots of riots and violence. So it was a good thing that didn't happen. Even though the news agencies probably called it a little too early, not that they call it, but they do their projections and there's clearly some bias there. I think that did minimize future actions, like we had the shooting in Indianapolis where the cops were cleared, protesters came out, had signs, did some chants, but nothing got out of control that night. I think that probably would have been different if the projected winner was not Joe Biden. We have a process that's ongoing. We have currently litigation. At some point, whenever that pans out, the Electoral College will vote. At least that's what's scheduled for December 14th. In the event the Electoral College is able to complete their vote, who they vote for is supposed to be the next president, and then Congress certifies those. So you can't say officially why the president-elect is actually a traditional term. It doesn't mean anything. It just means the person who's elected to be the next president. It's not uncommon for them to use that name if they're the projected winner, even if there's litigation involved. I believe even Al Gore used that in 2000 going against Bush. They both were looked at the president-elect. So it's kind of kind of difficult to argue that point. I think a lot of people get upset right now because they say, well, Joe Biden says he's president-elect, you know, and that's he can't say that because it hasn't been determined. But I don't think those same people got upset when Donald Trump did it four years ago when he was president-elect. Because even though he clearly won, it wasn't like a landslide. So it's kind of trivia. It doesn't really matter. But there's a process. We'll see what happens. At the end of the day, nobody's going to like the result. At least half the people aren't going to like the result. If it does flip for the president, then I think we're going to see some issues. I think if even one state changes, we'll probably see some issues. I believe the corruption's always been there. I've been asked a lot about that. There's no chain of custody for the mail-in ballots. There's no real supervision or close supervision during the counting, the sorting. We've seen videos online that may or may not be real. Some probably are about people ripping up ballots. And that's been an ongoing problem that's never really been addressed. I don't really logically think there's probably enough there where they're going to find enough stuff through the court system where they can change the result of the election. 
no matter if they do or don't, this needs to be addressed and some things need to be fixed because we need, need to restore faith in the system. And if the president does come out on top, I think that only highlights how much corruption and fraud there is. And hopefully, whichever one of them actually ends up swearing in, they do something about it because some things need to change. So that's kind of the election thoughts I had to answer about 20 people's different versions of questions. Another question I got from somebody was about John Brennan, former director of the CIA, very liberal, came out and made a statement recently about wanting the vice president and the cabinet to invoke the 25th Amendment to reboot the president because, well, essentially it's because he's doing his job. They say it's tradition, but realistically, what it appears to be in the public is when somebody is the outgoing or looking like they're going to be the outgoing president, that they don't do a whole lot. The fact is they do a lot. They still do their job, and they should do it up till the day they leave. And his statement came out before they were really talking about the fact that there was no transition stuff going in. And they basically wanted to stop him from doing his job. But anyway, the point was they were making was, couldn't he be prosecuted under Article 88 of the Uniform Code of Military Justice, the UCMJ? You know, and can't they go after the co-conspirators? And this individual thought the news agencies were co-conspirators, which I don't think they'd be able to prove. Additionally, it's the Uniform Code of Military Justice for the Uniform Services. So the news agencies, they're not going to be part of that. The other thing, too, is John Brennan was a civilian appointed director of the CIA. He doesn't fall under the uniform code. Additionally, he hasn't even been the director. There's been like three others since him. He's been out of the game for a while, so he doesn't fall under that law, which the 88 is about basically contemptuous statements against commanders and that kind of thing. So no, they don't fall under the uniform code of military justice. Now, there is a very obscure way some civilians could fall under the uniform code of military justice. Things like martial law, for example, that's theoretically possible. Also, situations where the unorganized militia is called into service, especially to work for a state government or with the military, would fall under the UCMJ. It's just unlikely that they would ever need to do anything about it. They'd probably just tell you to pack your bags and go home. Another email was about me. It was very lengthy. I understood it. I think if I read it to you, it'd be confusing, but it was about me and the way I talk sometimes, which I've mentioned before earlier on, but I realize at this point there's people that come on new that don't necessarily listen to all episodes. They listen to the ones that interest them, just like I do with other podcasts, so I totally get that. So short version is I have a TBI, a traumatic brain injury, but it's very mild. It's very moderate compared to most people that have one. My disability rating on it's zero. It just means they acknowledge it exists, but it's not debilitating. How it affects me is in my speech, and I've gone through speech therapy and other things with neurologists trying to understand how it affects me and what I can do about it. So what happens is sometimes it affects my speech to where I stutter. That was the first thing I noticed. So let's say I was out all day with somebody and talking a lot more than I normally do. Sometime later in the day in the evening, I would actually start having a very noticeable stutter. And over time, I actually tried to correct that, mostly subconsciously. Sometimes consciously, I try to correct the stutter, stop myself or pause and think about it a little bit, which is something I was taught how to do to help frame the words and pick them. And then in that process, sometimes when it happens now subconsciously, when I'm talking a lot, I don't have the stutter. It sounds more like an impediment and I won't completely sound out a word, but it's not necessarily a stutter, although it seems very similar. And then sometimes subconsciously what happens is I'm so used to trying to control it 
my brain will basically input another word where it shouldn't be. And in some podcasts, you can hear the things that don't make sense. Not necessarily contradictory. It's just a word that's misplaced. So one of the recent shows, I'd made a statement in there I'd noticed. Usually, I don't even notice this until after I upload them and listen to them the second time. Where I made a statement, part of it was like, if, how did I say it? Something like, so when you do this, was part of a sentence. And what I actually said is, so with you do this. So I said, with you do this instead of when you do this. So it makes no sense. So when you hear those things, that's what that's for. That's why that happens. And a lot of times, even if I do catch it, if I have a long string of conversation that I can't really isolate that or I have to re-record a large section, I just skip over it because I've talked about it before. It did bother me for a long time, but I do have that issue. But if you ever hear anything like that or you think it's contradictory, it doesn't understand, you just shoot me a question, I clarify. I'll go back and listen to it and say, yeah, this is what happened or I misspoke this or whatever. Part of it too was leading into the question, the way this email was written about how it almost seemed like I was uh, making things up or had to think them through before I said it. Part of it is for this reason. Other things too is like when I talked about things like, I think when I talked about SEER and I've done this about some other training and assessment, ones where I've talked about assessment programs in the military for like special operations or similar equitable level of intelligence stuff, they're not called special operations, is because my brain moves really quickly. So like people that know me will tell you that sometimes I'll have a conversation, they go, how did you go from A to B so quickly? It takes me so much longer to explain it than it would to just do it. So when I'm having these conversations, a lot of this is going like in an internal dialogue in my head. And I'm like, oh, don't say that. Don't say that. Or you probably shouldn't say that. And so in that process, I kind of get these weird pauses and then make whatever phrase or statement I need to. So that's kind of why that's there. Or I guess I should say that's kind of why that happens. The question I got was about gray man training like professional gray man part of it was are they trained to circumvent security systems so just to clarify again gray man is just a general term that sounds cool for the whole gray man concept that most people don't realize where it comes from or what it means and i stick with that because of the name of the show and that's what keeps people here but really what i call a professional gray man what really is a professional gray man is essentially a case officer for like the cia or equitable institutions and it's not all of them it's only some of them that have very specific training or live abroad long-term on their own. They all have some amount of this training. So yes, they do get some training on that. A lot of it too is like when I talked about when I worked for the DIA was you look at like a mission essentially or a target and there's times that you have to learn a skill or set of knowledge for a mission or for a target. So in the military, you could be getting a mission and operation and you have to go learn a new communication system or a new weapon system or learn something about you're going to go work with a foreign institution, guerrillas will say, and you have to learn about them. And people got another language, you got to learn customs and stuff. Same thing on the intel side. So some of them can be taught general things about what we'd call circumventing security. Some of them give more specifics and training or have to learn on their own for a specific mission on whatever it is. To what degree is not as significant as you might think in general, but for specific missions, people get taught and learn several different skills that are needed and sometimes they keep a good portion of that knowledge. Sometimes they just kind of lock it away until they need to use it again. The other part of the question I was asked to, and this was on Facebook, by one of the guys that had done a submission for the body language videos. He asked about, essentially about assassination, assassination training. Does that go on? What kind of training do they get? So to look at that, we have to, we'll go back 
in history a little bit to like prior to the advent of the modern intelligence community. You know, things like assassination has gone on, especially in wars for a long time. They're in history books, but assassination basically going and killing a person. So if we go back to World War II, just prior to the modern intelligence community, we look at the OSS, Office of Strategic Services. They took civilians, trained a lot of them in Canada and here. They learned how to work with the military, learned some military stuff, learned weapons, infiltration, communication systems. They get sent into mostly into Europe. And eventually from the OSS, we get the creation of the intelligence community. So the CIA is created, some of the OSS guys go there. The OSS itself really didn't become the CIA. That's what people say. It was actually the INR, which is part of the State Department, is really where it was absorbed. But several of those people went into places like the CIA, eventually the NSA. So yes, the OSS had missions like that. In that war, you got to think of it as a lot like the movies in a sense of large numbers of people in a battlefront force on force with front lines trying to kill bad guys, gain territory, free people. And then those more specific special missions were given to groups like the OSS. Not always them. There was a British counterpart, the SOE, Special Operations Executive. And some military guys probably had some similar stuff. And sometimes those would be targeted assassinations is what the term was used. Eventually, the OSS goes away. We have the CIA, and we know the CIA has done these things. But over time, a lot of this has transitioned. So it's not that they don't know how to use firearms or go in and do these things, but it's not really their mission set anymore. It's very rare that that happens. And it's not really called assassination anymore. I think it's because it's such a bad term. But the term, what we say now is basically we have a target and we kill or capture. And we say it in that order because if you take modern terrorist organizations, you know, if you get a hard, hard nosed guy that's a devout believer that we've already proven through years of expertise and experience with other guys or even his buddies, they're probably not going to talk. But taking him off the playing field is definitely going to affect the organization. He's probably going to get killed. Whereas other people will get captured that probably can get them to talk. So if we got the boss and his driver, on the surface, without getting into more specifics, probably going to kill the boss, probably going to capture the driver. So, yes, you can look at it as an assassination mission, but not like in the sense people think where a guy goes in, he sneaks around, he goes through the mud hut, shoots a guy in the back of the head. I mean, that kind of thing probably can happen. But they're usually more specific operations with specialized units, usually special operations forces, or sometimes the ground branch may do this type of stuff. So it's the same idea. It's just to explain that it's transitioned away more from the intelligence community to the military community. They get more of the training in that. They have more of the assets available, especially the last 20 years of global war on terrorism. They tend to get those missions in the special operations world. They're not really called assassinations, but there are missions that are meant to go in and kill bad guys, whether it's one or many. But in some situations, they will capture them. Like, if you look like Baghdadi or Bin Laden, it's probably no question they were going to end up getting killed. They were big enough, though, that while capturing them, you probably wouldn't get anything out of them. One benefit you can get to capturing somebody that big is putting them on trial, letting the world see it, letting other people have a piece of that, having people come in and testify, kind of really exposing the bad things that goes on. But the fact that they end up getting killed wasn't that big of a deal when it came to that. That's just a benefit you could get. So that's kind of how that all plays out. So it's not really assassination, but those types of missions do happen pretty much predominantly going to be with military units or some, some within the activities division. Another question I got was about Iran, their nuclear program, and if any of that could be affected by the election. It can be. So they have what they call the Atomic Energy Organization of Iran. And they are 
working on passing some legislation that may have already gone through or, or perhaps probably didn't go through yet, but could go through this year. They basically want to increase their enriched uranium production to about 120 kilograms, which is about 20% enriched, and put in more centrifuges. In fact, they recently just finished building and I think moving their advanced centrifuges to an underground facility. And they want to, I think, do some more work with some of their heavy water reactors. And basically this does go against the uh, deals in the Iran nuclear deal, which we pulled out of, but there's several other countries involved. And they're basically trying to advance this system. The thing is, is we put a lot of sanctions on them under the President Trump's administration. Biden is confirmed to be the president elected, and it's very likely he would grant relief as his predecessor that he worked for. President Obama had done that, and it tends to be more the Democratic point, which might make it easier on them. As far as Iran's position, they just want to pursue this. They hate us. They hate Israel. They want us out of the Middle East. But that's kind of where that's going right now. But it will be some months, I think, before we see some movement on that that'll be general common knowledge unless you like try to follow it to see what's being developed. The other thing, too, is knowing that they, they don't really care much about our elections. They just don't. They're only focused on themselves. I've also received some comments as well as questions regarding essentially preparedness groups or groups and places people can go and get training, especially if they don't, you don't want to go somewhere for a week and it's been like a thousand dollars to train with somebody with a name. <clears throat> so really it comes down to two ways to look at. One is going to say like a one-off class for a day or two, whether you're paying for it or it's a local group like on meetups, you know, that's not such a big deal. You go there, you got a subject you want to learn. You'd be prepared to take notes, maybe do a little research beforehand, ask better questions. You'll go there, you'll see how much they're covering. And in, the more research you do ahead of time or videos or whatever you watch on the subject you may not know, you actually can get a sense of how much they really know or how much they're really going into it, especially if you have decent questions that you want to learn more about whatever this subject is. So that's one way to do it. The other one is joining a group. So when you're joining a group, there's a lot of things I recommend. One is to look them up online. And not all groups have things online, and that's not a bad thing, but many do have social media or website accounts. So I would definitely go in there, look around, see the types of things they post, they share. If they have forums, I would go look through them. If it's, say, like it's on Facebook and you see the members, I'd go look at a few of their profiles. It'll kind of give you a sense of that community and the people involved there, what they're really thinking or doing or how they're acting. So if you have a group and they're focused on preparedness, learning skills to be on their own, you know, in case something happens or they just want to learn more about preparedness type things. And they're littered with memes and politics and conspiracy theories and all this kind of stuff. What that should tell you right off is it's not really a preparedness group. They say that they are, but they're probably not training or doing anything because they wouldn't have time for that crap. And then if they're not going in and cutting that out and saying this is not pertaining to what we're doing, they're not really a preparedness group or they're not ready to be one or know how to be one or have the leadership or organization in place. And I would skip that one and go on to another one. That's one thing I would do. Another thing I'd do is there was a book called Mags, Mutual Assistance Groups. Now it's been re-released with pretty much the same uh, like colors and label picture on the book under a different name. And it's probably the best book out there really on these types of groups. And it's not only about helping you identify a group. It's mainly about starting a group because you could start your own. But looking at that book, you can read it a few hours and the first time through, it gives you a lot of good ideas of what to look for in a group, depending on the type of preparedness group, whatever it is you're looking for. 
Now, just because they do have some things that other groups have or don't have some things other groups have doesn't mean they're bad. Just gives you an idea of how prepared they are and where their focus is. The other thing, too, is when you meet these groups, you should have questions prepared about their organization, what they do, you know, how skilled are their instructors, do they bring people in, how often do they train or meet up, are there places where you guys practice some of these skills. You know, if you're learning aquaponics, we'll say, are you actually getting that from a guy that teaches aquaponics or is there a guy in a group that does aquaponics? Are you going to get to help build a system? Or are you going to learn about it? What are you going to do? You want to have those kind of questions in mind. Also, if you pick a group and you decide to join them or hang out with them, I would give them, depending on how much they're putting into coming together as a group and doing stuff, I would give them three months up to six months before I really made a decision. Gives you time to meet people. Whether it's three or six, I'd say six if it's a larger group and you have to travel a little bit. Be around them, see what they're like when they're talking shop, when they're not really doing the training. If you guys go on a camp out or go to dinner, see what kind of conversations you get into. What are their personalities and beliefs like? And if you realize this is not the group of people I want to be around, no matter how good their training is, don't be there. You'll just end up frustrated. If you like what they're doing, like this is a group I want to be around, I would give them a better shot. But if you like them, if you like the people, I want to be around these guys, but man, their training sucks. If you can't help improve that, I would also move on and find something else. So a lot of it's going to be personality issues. The biggest thing you're going to run into is most of these groups aren't organized. They say they're organized, but they're not. They have no idea how to run it or run it like a business or a nonprofit. A lot of them don't have training plans. You know, they can't tell you when they're training or how often. They should know at least six weeks out for sure. Some groups, like the one I was in in Arizona, we plan things out for a year or more. You know, they sh- that would tell you that they're more organized. They should have this information available, even to the point of doing hands-on training, potentially homework, because you're there to learn. So the more of those things they have, the more they're probably squared away and more organized. It still doesn't mean that's where you're going to want to be. Maybe it requires too much involvement. Maybe you don't just like the people in general. But I would caution you to be careful with people where you're like, I like these guys. And that's the only positive. Make sure that there's training there. Make sure that they're communicating. How are they communicating? You know, what are they really talking about and focused on? Because if they're doing the preparedness stuff and they have a class once a month for two or three hours and it seems kind of hokey and then they're just bullshitting and talking all the time about whatever that's not related, they're not really serious or focused on that. And that's why you'd want to move on. That mutual assistance group book, whatever it's recalled now, that'll definitely help you out. If I can find a link for it, I'll put it in the show notes. Make sure you check the show notes for that link. And I'll put in both versions of the book in case they're both still out there so you can see where it is. I think they're around 25 bucks, but it's a great book that I've recommended to people. I do get some messages sometimes on subjects where it's always phrased like, here's what you missed, which I think is adorable. It's like a bait question. I get the people that send those don't know me because they wouldn't be that foolish. But if you've listened to the show, it's like, come on, you really think it's going to work? I haven't really missed anything, at least as far as what's been commented to me. Basically, when I pick a subject that I'm going to talk about or any that I had planned, I do look to see what's out there on it on occasion. Most of the time, I have a general knowledge of it. So when I take one of these things, I, I get an idea, already know about, say there's 10 things that 500 people or 50 people talk about that's very, very common. There's no point in me making that discussion. I go for the other things that are less known or less thought about that might help you if you already know that information. Or I have complete confidence that if you're going to go look more upon that, you're going to find those things other people already know. So there's no point in me parroting or repeating things that are publicly available and out there anywhere 
than anybody sees or knows. Sometimes I talk about them only to clarify when they're completely misunderstood, just like the term gray man and gray man concept. You know, even now I still see people that it's almost like they come off as though because they've had one experience or know somebody somewhere in some agency, they say it in a way, it's something about their attitude so they know what they're talking about. Like, I would know this. But all they're saying is, well, you know, I can't do this. I can't be a gray man. Or no, it's about how you dress and blend in. I'm like, that is, it's like, dude, because it's so much more than that. So sometimes I find things like that and I'll clarify them a little bit more if they're misconstrued or misunderstood or there's a question about it. Typically, I go for the things that aren't as widely known out there to either supplement what you already know or to give you a starting point for when you go learn those things that most people already know. And the other thing I try to do too, and this is just for my own benefit. On some shows, I can put out a lot of information very fast. I don't always do that, but I try to keep it clear and concise, and I try to keep it on average with the intro and the ad, if there's an ad playing and everything, to around 30 minutes, give or take, usually a little less, but usually around 30 minutes. That's just what I'm comfortable with. And the thing is, for me, I don't just sit down and record these. I do them in pieces, and I have a little bit of editing, and I only have so much time and patience, essentially. Not that I'm impatient. It's just... It gets kind of boring to the point where I'm like, I just don't want to do this. So once I start crossing about the 45-minute mark and doing it consistently, it like almost triples the amount of time I have to put in. It's like, eh. So I, I keep it clear and concise and short, not only for the viewer or listener's benefit, but also for mine. I did get asked questions about upcoming shows. I, I do want your ideas on shows or follow-ups to shows I've already had. I know that I probably am going to do another situational awareness one because I've only done the one in the beginning. And I know people want that, so I have to put something together for that. I actually want to put together something with video footage to make it easier to follow and understand. But eventually that'll happen. I've decided I'm not going to do the Edward Snowden one. Basically, I'm not going to explain why. It's not a legal thing. I'm just not going to do it. It's going to cause some conflict and frustrations that I don't need with people that are more important to me than the reality of Snowden. So I'm not going to do that. Make your own decision. There's plenty of stuff to read. You won't find most of it, but whatever. The uh, Intel Networks one, I'm going to do a follow-up to that. I did that for a specific community of people that wanted to know how to do that, so I'll be doing a follow-up to that one sometime here shortly, which the assessing and reporting Intel, basically how to report the Intel was a follow-up, kind of a follow-up congruent to that that I did for that same community. I was asked about the eye movement stuff, about a book, or something like that. There's no real books on IXS queuing. Like the article like I showed you, there's some very horrible videos on YouTube. Horrible because of the way they explain it, or as though it's so definitive like some people do with other body language. Really, if you want to learn better what it takes is somebody that understands it knows how to use it. They have skills in detecting deception, reading body language. They can sit down with you and explain all these pieces and how they work together. They can take a single statement and take three or four or five minutes explaining it and how they come up with A, B, and C. Part of the problem with that that I had when I was training people when I was doing interviews is some of the people I had with me, I was basically giving them ideas, explaining what I was doing, but some I was actually training. And when I was training them, I was missing large portions of the interviews because the interviews didn't stop for me. So they'd make a statement, and I have to sit there for two minutes and explain how I came about this, and then I missed two minutes of the interview. So that made it kind of difficult. So we cut that way back to just coaching. But that's really what it's going to take. What I am looking at doing is I've always talked about doing another contest I will be using video. I've actually considered pulling a, some clips of our presidential candidates 
only because I like pulling things that people already have strong biases about just so I can rip them apart. Not that I'm necessarily going to do that. I'd do it if it was in class. But I think I'm going to pick some things out or I'm either going to sit down and identify things and say, here's this and this, what does it mean? Or just a couple of minute clips and say, there's you know seven points to this, eight, eight times this happened, what does that mean? You know, check out their blink rate or I identified 37 different signs of deception. I don't expect you to find 37, but I want you to find as many as you can. Explain to me where they are and why. Something simple like that. What I might also do is do it live. I think that will be more fun to do an example like that live on a live air show with like David and Luke, something like that, where we can look at these different things and break them apart and then come up with something else for this kind of contest because I like doing the contest it gets people involved if you have ideas about a contest go ahead I'm not just going to do a random drawing I don't understand that I know people like like and share I was like that's simple it's just a random drawing but there's a lot of work in to track that if you got several social media out you know sites and then I got this podcast is on like 17 podcast platforms then I have to go through all those and some of them I can't even tell if you shared them so I'm not sure I'm going to do it but if you have ideas for a contest or something let me know We'll see if we can make that happen. And yes, I will answer this question one last time. And it won't be the last time. It's just it gets asked a lot. And I understand it. It's understanding what the gray man concept is or gray man theory. If you just look up the difference between theory and concept in the dictionary, concept makes more sense than theory because it's not really a theory. But it comes from espionage. The idea is how they started things out, like I previously described with the OSS, but happened before that where they take regular people off the street they already have some skills or knowledge that appeal. They train them in other skills and knowledge, and they place them in environments usually around the world. Initially, it was there to live there and be part of that community in order to conduct whatever espionage or spying mission that they had. That's why they called it being gray. You're kind of in the gray, and people can't see you. That's where it comes from. The problem with this is everybody seems to narrow it down to your appearance and how you look. And while that is completely incomplete, as I say, it's only about 5% of the concept, what it does is suggest that some people can't do it or it only applies in certain situations. And like people are like, well, if you're wearing neon pink and fluorescent colors, you can't be great. Yes, you can. Just maybe not where you're at right now. It's about your environment. Your environment first screams appearance, but it's not just that. What's the tone? What's the baseline? What's the behavior of people? So while you think you might be gray or it only applies to how you look, you still are moving about the community. How are you moving? How do you park your car? What kind of car do you drive? How do you behave and interact? What's your tone of voice? How do you have conversations with them? Plus, what's a gray man's job is to get information. So how are you getting information? What information are you giving away? So it's a lot more about being gray. It goes way beyond just your appearance, which is what I discuss on here. All the things I talk about, I think damn near everything I've done so far applies to the concept in one way or another. I don't talk a lot about appearance, although I have done it. I talk more about behaviors, interactions, how to assess people, assess information. That's really what it's about. Why? The reason why is your interaction with people visually is only good for about five seconds on average. You walk down the street, you walk through the store, you walk by somebody, even if you're not consciously looking at them, you pick them up, your periphery, keep going. For that few seconds, they were somewhat gray. Big portion of that just could be what's going on in your mind because you were looking for some sale on corn or whatever. Maybe you were really looking and you just didn't notice them or you're not trained how to pick up five, six, eight people around you. That's fine. They're still essentially gray in that situation. So that's over, though, at that point. Now they say something, and there's something unique, 
or different about the way they speak or what they say, and it draws your attention to them. Now they're no longer gray. So that's why it's only good for those few seconds. It's great for those few seconds when needed, when you need to get in and out of a situation, but it goes way beyond that because you communicate, you interact. You know, what are you doing? How are you pulling your keys out to go to your car? How do you approach your vehicle? What way are you doing it from? Are you doing it in a way to not stand out, but to be safe and secure? You know, there's other things too, like your social media presence, how you're online, where do you get your mail? How many different names are you using? Do you have LLCs, business accounts versus using your private stuff? There's all kinds of ways that are involved in that that come from that world of what we call being a gray man that most people don't think about or know how to employ, and so they just knock it down to their appearance. So that's why I say it's it goes way beyond that. So it's not that the information out there is necessarily bad. Some of it definitely is, but it mostly like limits to your appearance. And then there's some guys, I've addressed them in some other shows here without pointing them out, things they've said that you would do to like look for surveillance, for example. And I was like, this is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. And I explain why. And I don't point out who these people are. I just say, if you see this, here's why it's stupid. I don't want to trash on them and get in some little hate war or whatever with people that are a fan of somebody's YouTube channel. So that was a few of our questions. Check the show notes. You can contact me on Twitter, Facebook, or my email to give me more questions or comments. Also do it on your podcast apps that you're on or whatever website you're listening to. Don't forget to like and share. Give us the star, the heart. Leave a review on Apple or whatever podcast you're on, whether it's for the whole show or just a specific episode. I'll figure out how we're going to do this, but I think we're going to do this in the future pre-planned to give time people to ask questions that we can answer. I'm only going to do this many now because we're hitting it a half hour. So thank you for listening. We'll have more information and Gray Man talk for you soon right here on Gray Man, Hiding in Plain Sight.